Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Um, yeah, not a very new podcast anymore. Uh, you know, we've been doing <laughs> been doing this for almost two years now. So, uh, but there still might be some of you tuning in for the first time. So basically, I'll just explain what we do here on the podcast, and that's uh, basically I invite on uh, an author to discuss a, a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, you know, on something we think uh, on a topic you guys would like to hear a discussion about. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast to get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Donald L. Drakeman. And Dr. Drakeman is a fellow in operations and technology management at the Cambridge Judge Business School a distinguished research professor in the program of, on constitutional studies at the University of Notre Dame, and a venture partner at Advent Life Sciences. Uh, he is the founding CEO of the U.S. biotech company that pioneered the development of the checkpoint inhibitor cancer treatments recognized in the Nobel Prize for Medicine 2018. Uh, these products, Yervoy and Opdivo, are being used to treat many different forms of cancer. And, uh, but uh, most impressively, though, the, uh, the crowning laurel of his impressive career, really, is that he is a previous guest <laughs> on this podcast. Huh. <laughs> or I kid. Uh, but yes, he is a previous guest on this podcast for, uh, for his book, uh, The Hollow Core of Constitutional Theory, Why We Need the Framers. Uh, but uh, lastly, he is also the co-author, along with Lisa Drakeman and Nectarios Oreopoulos, of From Breakthrough to Blockbuster, The Business of Biotechnology, which was published back in April by Oxford University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Drakeman, thank you uh, so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's great to be back. <laughs> no problem. Um, anyway, so first off, uh, why don't you tell us about your, your collaborators on this book? And what made you want to write it? What was the, the genesis of, of the book? So I spent most of my, uh, my career in the biotech industry as an entrepreneur, uh, starting and running biotech companies, trying to cure cancer and other terrible diseases. And uh, I got into it very early on, as did my wife, uh, Lisa Drakeman. Uh, and we initially worked together to build one company, uh, and then she was recruited away to, to start a, a new biotech company in uh, Denmark. Uh, and so she was successful in, in her venture or my venture that we started together, uh, has done well in terms of coming up with new, new treatments and, and, you know, building opportunities for medicine to improve. And uh, as we went through that process, and particularly two people who came to it from the outside of the sciences, uh, we both are humanities students by, by training. And so we learned this on the go, and we had to learn the entire industry from beginning to end, uh, all of the regulatory side, the science side, the, the business side. And, uh, and we decided that it would be great to to take that perspective of someone who came in not having any background and share uh, with 
others like us, others who, who didn't go to school to learn medicine or biochemistry, um, what this business of biotechnology was all about. And we got together with our friend and colleague, Aris Oriopoulos, uh, who's a Cambridge professor, who's an academic expert in this area. And the idea was, we want to you know, be participant observers to, to explain how it really works you know, in the trenches. Uh, but we also want to take advantage of the very best academic insights that have come over the last you know, 50 years into how to develop new drugs, how to do things that have never been done before. And that's what he brought. And we had a great partnership. And uh, the result is, is the book you see. All right. Well, um, I guess we should start with uh, the basics first. <laughs> or, or, um, so what exactly is a biotech company? A biotech company is basically a little pharmaceutical company with no products that they're selling yet. So at one point back in the history of biotech 50 years ago, these companies started out to try to, to use new biological tools that weren't being used by the pharmaceutical industry, monoclonal antibodies and recombinant DNA, newfangled things that won Nobel Prizes back in the 70s. But then the pharmaceutical industry figured out those are great inventions. We should use those tools also. So they started doing it. And the biotech companies uh, kept going because it turned out that bringing entrepreneurial like passion and blending it with the capital markets, I mean, it's just a, <laughs> it's actually a miracle medicine in making new medicines. And it turns out we have now thousands of little companies. Average biotech company has 50 employees. Uh, they are trying to compete in one of the world's most heavily regulated areas. There are very few areas outside of nuclear power, I think, that's that are regulated more than uh, the government regulates the development and licensing of new medicines. And for good reason in terms of protecting the public and all that sort of thing. But uh, you've got an area where expertise in science, expertise in, in regulation, uh, expertise in business, all that expertise is required. And the pharmaceutical companies have loads of it. They have 100,000 employees each. Mm -hmm. They've been doing it for the better part of a century. They have the advantage of scale, of scope, of expertise and of vast resources. These little biotech companies just have, have new ideas that they're trying out. Hmm. And I think if you're a betting person, you might think the smart money would bet on the pharmaceutical companies who know what they're doing and have the resources to do it. But it turns out to be the opposite, that these little biotech companies who are making it up as they go along have developed more genuinely new and important medicines, 40% more than the entire pharmaceutical industry combined. That's the major insight of the book and it has a bunch of other insights, but that's, that's the key take home message. How, how did all these little biotech companies manage to do more when they were starting, you know, kind of at a deficit in everything that's important. 
Uh, and the answer very simply is that the market, the market, the investors who invested in these companies, venture capitalists, public investors in IPOs, angel investors, that the market actually makes better decisions about R&D, about what might be promising new medicines than the central committees at Big Pharma. And therefore, things that pharma would never try get a chance because some investor says, I'm going to take a flyer on this. Mm -hmm. And they try it. And some of them work and some of them don't. It's an area where no one exactly knows what's going to work until the the data from the human testing is in. Uh, but turns out that these little companies that just are taking shots on gold, doing the smartest thing they can think of, but, you know, with limited resources, uh, that they are figuring out a way to come up with new medicines in a way that big pharma hasn't. Yeah, and not only, you know, not only is biotech creating these, you know, important medicines for these unmet medical needs. They're they're doing so, which with much lower costs than you know big pharma. That's exactly right. And the when we've interviewed people at big pharma, we we hear the same mantra all the time: hard to start, hard to stop. It's almost impossible to get a new research program approved for, for research funding. But then once it gets approved, it keeps going forever and generating huge costs. Uh, and those sunk costs end up meaning that the pharmaceutical companies spend more to get less. And the biotech companies you know, Wall Street investors are not always like super sympathetic. I mean, they, they, they'll, they'll try something because it looks good, but if it's not looking good fast enough, they'll just yank the funding and send it somewhere else, another biotech company or another industry. And that kind of, of ruthless decision making on programs that are not paying off allows biotech to do the same heavily regulated, really expensive process. I mean, even, mm -hmm. even when you're right, it's really expensive. Uh, but they've learned how to, how to make being, <laughs> to not, to being wrong, to not having something curing cancer. They've learned how to pull the plug far more efficiently yeah. uh, than the well-oiled machines of big pharma with all the experts, uh, you know, getting together in a central committee that, that hands down decisions from on high. Yeah, and biotech it um, it has many applications outside of medicine. I mean, it's not just it specific. does. Um, there's you know agricultural biotech. There's environmental biotech. There there are many areas where uh, biotech will you know meaning you know sort of bi biotechnology meaning the, the the use and manipulation of of molecules from living organisms as opposed to um, chemicals that are, are innate molecule or they're inherently not they're not mm -hmm. living molecules themselves for example you 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 to make a chemical molecule for medicine you you do a chemical synthesis like we all did in high school chemistry to to make a biological you grow it it's 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 you know kind of akin to gardening 
provide it with, with food in the right environment. Um, so there are lots of applications. Our book focuses on the ones where we have felt the biggest impact as, mm. as humans, as patients, uh, and have seen the biggest impact uh, on uh, both the business of, of, of medicine and on uh, the you know kind of financial sector where billions and billions are invested each year uh, in the hopes of developing you know medicines that'll make cancer patients live longer. Yeah, uh, yeah. On that on that note, um, but backtracking a little bit, just talk about a bit about the birth of uh, of the biotech industry and why the discoveries of monoclonal antibodies and recombinant DNA was such a huge deal. I mean, I, you mentioned in the book that Humira, the monoclonal antibody, it's going to be the, the best-selling drug ever. Uh, yeah, but just so talk about that, like why is why are these discoveries so, so important? They were earth-shaking in retrospect. Take monoclonal antibodies, which, as you say, uh, are the technology that yields the, the world's best-selling drug and, and will become and stay probably for quite some time the world's uh, best-selling product, Humira uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, many uh, autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Um, that's based on, on a technology originally developed at uh, Cambridge University. Uh, to be able to fashion antibodies like the antibodies in our bloodstream. If you've been vaccinated against the flu or uh, COVID or anything else, um, the vaccines are designed to get your body to make antibodies that Mm -hmm. will seek out and and render harmless the disease uh, organism when it when it invades your body. So antibodies are essentially the eyes and ears of our immune system. But sometimes the body-donor antibodies are not doing the right job uh, or there aren't enough of them. And the scientists at Cambridge figured out how to make uh, essentially artificial antibodies in the laboratory that were called monoclonal, which means they were all alike. So you could mm. you could make them all to bind to this kind of cancer or to this particular cell on an inflammatory um, uh, organ. And, uh, and what was interesting at the time, now back then, essentially all the medicines anybody knew about were chemicals, uh, you know, these synthesized uh, non-living entities that we think of as pills that we, we take to feel better from this and that. Uh, when the Cambridge scientists said, you know, look, we just created this wonderful thing. We can make antibodies just like the, the body makes antibodies. Uh, they went to their, their, their patent office and the patent office said, we don't really foresee any commercial applications of this technology. So we're not going to file a patent. This was kind of stunning uh, in <laughs> retrospect, since it's led to this yeah, right. cells many, many billions a year. But <laughs> it shows how you, you can't always see at the time where medicine's going to go. Then people started using uh, antibodies in a variety of different diseases. 
early trials. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. It took a long time to figure out why they did and why they didn't. And I actually had a uh, very eminent uh, physician say, uh, you know, when I was pitching the idea of antibodies, that antibodies will never be used to t- treat cancer. And then right now, antibodies are the, you know, one of the mainstays of cancer treatment. So predicting the future is hard, uh, as, as Yogi said, and predicting it in medicine is harder than in most fields. So that was that discovery. And then the, the twin discovery uh, at roughly the same time was recombinant DNA, which is how we can make insulin, for example, now in a laboratory and give it to diabetes patients mm-hmm. when before it had to be extracted from, I think, pigs, uh, because we didn't know how to duplicate uh, living cells uh, like that. Uh, and we learned how to do it. And, and those, those are the twin towers of, of biotechnology as it's as applied to health. And that started off the industry. Venture capitalists said, wow, we're going to try to take advantage of these things. Um, but then everybody started doing it because the technologies became so exciting. Right. And so really what ended up differentiating biotech companies from pharma companies is just that we in the biotech industry were just little companies that didn't have enough resources and were kind of figuring it out as we went along. And that entrepreneurial spirit combined with the marketplace goes a long way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, just talk a little bit about the um, the journey, uh, as you call it, from the the, the light bulb moment uh, to regu- regulatory approval for uh, a drug. What uh, what does that entire process entail? You know, why does development cost of of a drug cost so much? I think it's something like two and a half billion dollars per approved drug something yeah yeah, something like that uh why is it why is it so time consuming why is it uh so costly and is that process too um long and overburdensome so i think that the the length of the process is is governed by the fact that through every step where you're doing something uh, for a, in, in, in terms of trying to create a novel treatment rather than a, a once-a-day pill to replace a twice-a-day pill, mm-hmm. here you're trying to do something that's never been done before. And so you don't really know what the successful drug is going to look like. Uh, and so you're going to start off by trying a number of things and you say, aha, look, I have this idea that no one's ever tried this way. So you, you, you go out and you make yourself a monoclonal antibody saying, and you test it and you, you do various things to, to make yourself confident that it might have some of the properties you'd like it to have. That process will take you, you know, anywhere from six months to six years, depending on where, how lucky you are that the first ones you're trying mm-hmm. uh, work out. And uh, then there's a lot of testing to, that goes into getting comfortable that this is going to be something safe enough to try in a patient. Once you get to that stage, you start interacting directly with the FDA 
And the FDA, you know, we, we all like to complain about the FDA. I think they work very hard with limited resources. Uh, there's a constant balance between um, how much trouble they get into if a drug comes along and turns out to be toxic and to hurt hurt people. Uh, and uh, and so the FDA gets a lot of grief about that on the one hand, and it gets a lot of grief on the other hand if it blocks too many medicines over being too concerned about whether it's good enough or whether it's it's might have some toxicity in a very small number of patients. Mm. Uh, since almost every drug, particularly every drug for a life-threatening condition, are going to have some side effects. Uh, you, you need it to have a dramatic effect on the disease, and it's very unlikely that it can do that without having some sort of effect on on the rest of you, just like you'll have a sore arm if you get a flu shot. Uh, it's it's it, it comes with the territory. And then there's the process of testing it in patients and do find out that it works like a charm, rarely works like a charm. But I'll tell you what's one of the b biggest things that we've experienced anecdotally in cost is that almost everything looks like it's got some promising signs in your early clinical trials. Right. So it's very hard to pull the plug after that because it looks promising. And they figure out whether that's, you know, an artifact or whether that's a real sign um, requires you to, um, to test it in a lot of patients. And uh, in cancer trials, it can cost $100,000 a patient to do the testing, the record keeping, uh, and everything else. That's turned out to be a, a probably a useful profit center for the hospitals. Mm -hmm. It gives patients access to a, a drug that's not yet on the market. Getting enough patients is always difficult. Mm. Uh, people may not want to go into clinical trials. They don't understand it. Uh, or there are lots of products that are trying to compete, and that takes time and, and, uh, and effort. And so at the end of the day, it's a long, you know, 10 to 15-year process. It's very hard to shorten unless you, you get lucky. In other words, Maybe, maybe you're lucky with one and it goes well and you think, well, I know how to do this and you try the next one and it, it doesn't go well and the one after that doesn't go well and you realize you didn't really know how to do it. You just managed to kind of hit it just right that first time. Uh, so it's a, it's a long process. It's going to be hard to shorten. Uh, it's a, at the end of the day, what, costs the most, what really makes the billions add up in terms of, of adding costs to drug development is how much money you end up spending on drugs that go nowhere. Mm -hmm. So when you say that it costs two, three, four billion, you know, different people have different ways of counting to develop one new drug, that includes the cost of all the failures along the way. Uh, so if you say that one in about 10 drugs entering clinical trials, first clinical trials meaning first treatment in humans, if one in 10 ultimately succeeds, which is roughly the average, mm -hmm. uh, that means that you're paying for 10 things and you're getting one. Yeah. That's, that's the easiest math for why right. all this costs so much. Right. Uh, and, uh, and un until we can turn those 
medical and scientific unknowns into at least somewhat knowns, that's going to continue to be an issue. That 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 success rate has not budged in 50 years, oh, wow. uh, maybe in 100 years. So we've, we've been able to do more and to come up with more important drugs, but we've only done that by trying many, many, many more things sure. than used to be tried. Uh, so that's the long answer. The short <laughs> answer to your question is it costs 10 times to do one thing. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking uh, sort of on the subject and just uh, if you don't mind indulging me because I don't I, I know I know next to nothing <laughs> about this sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, so, so like the covid vaccines, for example, um, it, it seems like those were uh, I mean, I don't know if there was anything sort of they were built on anything in development already. Uh, but it seems like the uh, those were, you know, pushed out to market at uh record speed um you know it was a very impressive effort to get you know to get these these vaccines out there is that is the covid are the covid vaccines sort of sui generis they're just like their own thing or is that uh, can the process be streamlined uh for other drugs like the way uh, or for other medicines that the way uh, things were for the COVID vaccines. Yeah, so I think the answer is 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 sort of. Um, vaccines are a little bit easier to develop than than drugs mm. for a bunch of reasons I won't bore you with. But um, uh, at the very least, one of the key factors is that your clinical trial measures whether patients are generating antibodies. As I said at the beginning, that's what mm-hmm. you're trying to do, trying to get your patient to to make their own antibodies. Uh, and you can get that measurement real fast after you give somebody a vaccine. And and whether your patient lives five years or not, when you treat them with a new cancer drug, requires you to wait five years. So uh, there is that simple thing. But there, there was something very important with the COVID vaccine, two things that I'd like to focus on. Sure. One, the technology that went into those vaccines, particularly the mRNA technology of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, that that is what we see mostly here in the United States. That technology had been being worked on by by those companies for more than a decade. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a terrific technology in search of a disease. And they tried looking at cancer, tried looking at infectious disease, all kinds of diseases. And vaccines were not one area that has been, has not, has not been favored for investment historically in, in our industry because um, the, the potential economic benefit for a variety of reasons is rarely high enough. That's very different in in a um, uh, COVID vaccine where where you have such massive numbers of people that need to be vaccinated and mm. government stepping up to pay for them. So um, that's one factor. Is this technology had been had been maturing and had been kind of dreamed up and ready to go, <laughs> and as a result, these folks at, at the little biotech company that Pfizer got its vaccine from, BioNTech, 
and at Moderna, both little investor-backed biotech companies, ended up designing their COVID vaccines essentially over a weekend. Oh, wow. Because everything was ready. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was like plug and play. Sure. Like, wow, this is just what we needed, a pandemic. And, um, and so the, the, uh, the technology was ready, and then they were off to the testing races, and it turned out to work. Now, there were many, many other vaccines that were tested that didn't work. We don't hear about them because they didn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, and some countries, you know, sort of bet heavily on on a vaccine developed by one of their local you know, companies. And if that didn't work, they were in a not terrific place. So we have been fortunate. Interesting story about Pfizer, Pfizer or not Pfizer, Glaxo. Glaxo was the number one vaccine company. They've been working on mRNA technology. They've been thinking maybe we should try this with vaccines. COVID comes along. Same time, Moderna and BioNTech are, are designing theirs. The scientists at Glaxo come up with a design of their own. So if you're a little biotech company and you've got this pandemic, you've got the government desperate to buy a zillion doses, and you've got the technology, you design it over the weekend. You say, all right, let's do it. And, you know, Monday morning, you start you start going, right, you, start, right. you know, divert the resources from somewhere else and you're off to the races. Uh, at Glaxo, you know, they had to write memos and go to committees. And then that committee had to report to another committee. And it finally worked its way up to the central committee at the top of Glaxo. And they got all the experts together and they hemmed and they hawed and they and they said, no, we don't think mRNA technology is ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so Glaxo is now not the number one vaccine company anymore uh, because they just, you know, thought that we need to be more conservative. We don't want to make a mistake here. Yeah. Whereas the little biotech companies, they weren't trying to conserve anything. They were just trying to come up with something good to do with the technology that they've been working on for so long. So that that cut off a lot of the development time that would normally go into it. Uh, and then everybody kind of pitched in. People signed up for the clinical trials. You know, there, there became a you know, kind of global data sharing uh, yeah. in, a, in a way that it tends uh, sometimes not to happen in a competitive industry. Uh, and so it, it ended up working uh, about as well uh, and about as fast as it, it could possibly be done. And it's, it's a tribute to the companies that got involved and, and to then figure out how to make it and distribute it um, is, you know, has been a huge logistical challenge on top of the scientific challenge. Uh, but none of it would have happened if the, you know, Moderna and BioNTech little German biotech company, didn't have investors yeah. that had given them some money to try this newfangled mRNA technology. Uh, geez, anything you can come up with. <laughs> we got we got money working here. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, I was, I that's just, what, what happened. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, speaking of the uh, the money thing, uh, tell us tell us about the capital raising process for for biotech. What uh, what does that entail? You know, where where is that fund? Where is the funding coming from for uh, for these companies? For most companies in the early stages, it comes from venture capital. And um, it 
that's the first place at which there's an opportunity for, you know, there to be a, a, a technology that's a good idea that never quite goes anywhere. Uh, and so whatever science, wherever the scientists are that have come up with this clever idea, they need to, to find an investor. And they're often people like the folks at my firm, you know, MDs and PhDs and entrepreneurs who have been around this block before who evaluate it and look at whether this looks promising enough. And we set up a fund to have, you know, 12 to 15 investments in it. And so that, you know, we know most of those investments aren't going to go anywhere. And then when we do make an investment, we, we do it in tranches and we say, okay, we want to see your, your experiments show A, B, and C. And if they show A, B, and C, which means it looks like you're making progress on a good timeline in the right direction, then we'll come through with more money. And we, we commit to give you that more money if you're getting good results. But if you're not getting good results, that's not worth putting more money in. And then we're going to pull the plug and invest it in some other company. And that allows for essentially a kind of a, a positive churning of ideas, of, of uh, ideas that get a, an initial chance and then the scientists have to have to not only get the science done, but to continue convincing the venture capitalists that this is moving in the right direction. Uh, the venture capitalists, then, you know, we we put together a fund and we call it a ten-year fund, but we really only want to hold these investments for three to five years. That's not going to be enough to to cure cancer, to, to, to take something from a, an academic mm -hmm. laboratory and turn it into a, an FDA-approved drug. So we're going to need to, to either uh, sell that idea on to a pharmaceutical company or a large biotech company or uh, for the company to do an IPO. And, and um, uh, companies that we raised, uh, Lisa and I, uh, uh, both, both went the IPO route and we uh, my company in, in, on the NASDAQ, her company uh, on the, the Danish stock market. Uh, and that brings in more investors, uh, some of which are just people like you and me who might say, yeah, to our broker, we'll buy a, a little bit of this kind of stock. Mm. Uh, all the way to super expert, uh, you know, MDs and PhDs who who are deep into the science who've been hired by hedge funds and others to right. um, advise them on what looks most promising, and so you've got thousands of different investors out there. You go on a roadshow, takes you all over the world, and uh, uh, you know when when I was on the Nasdaq, we'd go to Denmark to try to sell <laughs> stock, and when Lisa was on the Bain stock exchange, she'd come to the U.S. to sell stock. Yeah. So, so the money flows are everywhere, uh, and the, the idea is to just look for, for a match between, you know, investors who, who like this kind of idea and your ability to show that, that you're going to be able to take their money and reach a milestone that's meaningful in terms of the stock price or whatever, because you don't have any revenues. You don't have any earnings. There's no earnings per share. It's, it's all driven by how much people are willing to believe that you're making progress towards having a, you know, a billion dollar blockbuster. Right. And that, that's a really, 
I think turns out to be a healthy process for the industry, although I have to say you spend a lot of time on it. And the scientists who imagine sometimes that biotech and the biotech industry is nothing but science. It's, you know, if, if you think about it that way, then you're going to have nothing but science at the end of the day because what you need to have at the end of the day is a, is a product that you can sell. And in between, what you have to sell is stock, and therefore you have to have a story that will appeal to investors that makes sense, that, mm-hmm. that explains why you're on the path to, to medical success. Gotcha. And uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that, that companies can raise you know, billions, up to billions of dollars um, to develop new drugs uh, based on investors' belief that this is a promising industry. And the investors believe that because of what's been shown over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, right. So uh, you mentioned uh, CEOs a little bit ago, and then you mentioned that you know your background, your wife's background, uh, <laughs> you know, is not uh, in uh, medicine or chemistry or anything like that. You're, you know, liberal arts people. Uh, but where where are the biotech CEOs coming from? Are they is there are they mostly are these guys and gals mostly from one specific area, or are is or is there you know are their backgrounds like you know completely unique? They're coming from uh, you know law or or you know anything else but but uh, you know uh, medicine or science anything like what 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 is is there a trend to you know where these these CEOs are coming from you know or anything like that or is it just you know totally scattershot? At, at the beginning, uh, a lot of the CEOs were drawn from the large pharmaceutical companies, mm. and uh, some of them worked out really well, and others found it difficult because they were being asked to do the same thing they used to do with a hundred thousand people with less than a hundred people. Right. And so uh, applying big pharma management uh, style to a uh, little biotech companies not always been successful, uh, but it has sometimes. So some come from big pharma. Sometimes the scientific invest, uh, inventors have have an entrepreneurial you know, instinct and an ability to communicate with non-scientists that allows them to come in and actually build a company and, and, and tell the story to investors who were not uh, scientifically trained. Other scientists are, uh, um, um, you know, they're so, they've spent their whole lives talking only to other super expert scientists. Uh, they may have the world's best story, but they don't know how to tell it to the people who have, uh, you know, the money that, that they need to get. So it's, it's really finding the right person, irrespective of background. I had an undergraduate come to a, uh, a meeting of biotech folks, and she was chatting with a handful of us. And uh, she said, I'd, I'd like to be a biotech CEO. I'm a biology major. What, what should I do next? <laughs> and so the, you know, the, the fellow who was, uh, you know, in business development and licensing said, you should, you know, get a PhD in the sciences and then do business development. And the person who'd been a, you know, academic researcher said, no, no, you should, you should be an academic right, researcher. Right, right, right. And, you know, on and on and on. And I said, did not say, well, you should major in religion, write books about the Constitution. Um, but, 
But the point is that, that this is a field that, that, as in almost every entrepreneurial endeavor, you, you have to, to, you know, figure out how to do everything from the FDA regulations to, you know, changing the toner in the printer. And, um, and it's, it's more of an attitude than anything. But what it turns out is because the knowledge in this industry, there's just so much to learn. Uh, the science is constantly changing. The, 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 the capital markets are always in flux. Yeah, sure. Uh, the, uh, the regulations are constantly being rethought about uh, that, that it tends to be an unusually highly educated group of people. Uh, many, many uh, CEOs have, have PhDs or MDs mm -hmm. or advanced degrees in something. Uh, and I think that really is more of a testimony to their, their willingness and, uh, and ability to, to learn a lot. Uh, than it is to, to, to bring up any particular knowledge base. The science is moving fast enough that, you know, if you were a PhD scientist that got your degree 15 years ago, yeah. you know, what you were doing then is is probably largely way out of date compared sure, to what yeah. you got to do now. So, um, so it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting group of people and you, you, you meet them and, and, Sometimes you can say, oh, yeah, they used to be big pharma because they, you know, they dress better than the ones who <laughs> used to be scientists who look like they're still in the lab. Mm -hmm. But but in terms of what they say and do, the successful ones all sound alike. It's 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 an ability to kind of get excited about the science and explain how that's going to change the way patients lives come out, you know, are impacted. Yeah. Are most of these companies, are they coming from Silicon Valley or are they, uh, you know, uh, spread out? you know, geographically uh, in the United this, States? This or? is very much a, a global industry. Uh, almost every developed country has a biotech industry. Uh, the U.S. was first, uh, although as a, with the monoclonal antibody technology, the technology has often come from, from non-U.S. sources. Mm. But the U.S. has been historically and i very much hope in the future will be very friendly to entrepreneurship will have you know investors who are very open to to looking for you know high risk high reward opportunities uh and uh for a long time and and still the u.s dominates uh in terms of the, the, the numbers of companies and the, and the, the market caps of the companies. Um, but uh, everywhere you go, increasingly, I mean, you can even do an IPO in China now with a, with a biotech company in Japan uh, that, that probably wasn't possible when we started and it's now going on. Uh, but everyone looks to the U.S. as sort of the, the gold standard mm -hmm. uh, of of a combination of the the entrepreneurs, the science, and the 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 financial markets to support them. Yeah. So, where do you think where do you think the industry is headed in the future? What um, the map of the genome? Where does that where is that going to lead? You know, in the next yeah fifty you know, years or if well, I scratch my head with with my my business school colleague, Aris, over this, because the typical business cycle 
is you get these disruptive technologies come along and a bunch of entrepreneurial upstarts take advantage of them and the big established players like big pharma are threatened and some of them you know end up being dinosaurs and go away and some of them adapt some of them buy the little guys and then some of the little guys grow into big guys like you know apple and microsoft um and then things to settle down a bit and you've got like you would predict that there would be a kind of a new biopharmaceutical industry of maybe not 85 company uh, only, but maybe 185. But, and then there'd be much less this little biotech companies running around. I mean, five, the question not why there are 5,000 biotech companies, but why are there always 5,000 biotech companies? <laughs> and they just keep coming and going and people keep making new ones. Yeah. And, and I think it's going to stay that way. I think, I think this, we're going to really resist the trend of kind of settling in because of exactly the data we started talking about, that the most efficient way anyone has ever come up with to develop a new drug is by having lots of little companies try all kinds of different things. And uh, that's just for, you know, human nature reasons just doesn't happen and seems not to be able to happen in the large bureaucratic organizations. You need little companies willing to, you know, really take a flyer on a risky thing to, mm-hmm. to make these new medicines happen. I mean, I really think they're giving out the Nobel Prizes these days. Uh, and so it's top of mind. I, I think somebody ought to give a Nobel Prize to the biotech investors, the venture capitalists, the hedge funds, the you know aunts and uncles who who, who helped out the, the scientists start that company for the first time whoever right, they were right, right, right. because they have done something that if any single person did it we'd give them a Nobel Prize in a heartbeat which is to <laughs> increase the productivity of life-saving drugs by forty percent yeah 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 that's great so so do you have any um... Do you have any advice to give uh, to the large pharmaceuticals or to the the small biotech companies about uh, uh, you know proper procedure, or proper way to, or you know how to orient themselves for for the future? I think that that the pharmaceutical companies are figuring out slowly but surely that they that for their really innovative uh, drug development that they need the biotech companies and that they're outsourcing more and more of that R&D and taking kind of bets, options on lots of biotech programs. I think that's very smart Mm. because for a lot of reasons I won't bore you with that my colleague, Aris, has has published widely on. It's in these large organizations. There there are just so many levers that work against innovation. Yeah. Uh, But... um, the place where I'd like to 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 give advice that that I think needs to be heard is um, we as patients and we as voters want drugs to be less expensive, and uh, we we tend to express that in terms of well this drug is too expensive, and the rest of the world has sort of those complaints have have caused their their governments to stop buying the expensive medicines 
And so some medicines that were created, for example, in England with taxpayer-funded research at English universities are not available to patients in England because the government deems them to be not cost-effective enough. And we need to realize that, that to make this wonderful equation of innovation to, to improve health work, that, that we as, a, as, you know, the citizens need to invest in that twice. We need to invest at the earliest stages of the basic research and development that creates monoclonal antibodies and recombinant DNA in the very first place. And then we need to invest at the end to be willing to pay at least for as long as the patents last yeah. the premium prices that investors need to see for the investors to put up the lion's share of the cost of drug development in the middle. That's where the real costs are. That's where the real risks are. And there need to be rewards commensurate with those risks. Or investors are just going to go on and, and invest in something else. Right, and, and then we all suffer uh, because then those drugs won't and, get Then we don't have the new drugs. Right? Yeah. Right. And the industry goes down the tubes. And and we we have invested already in all this innovation that's going to go nowhere because it's just too expensive for it to be done any other way. So that's what we need to, to bear in mind as as people, as patients, as voters, uh, this is an industry that, that, you know, needs support for the most exciting and innovative things because there's just no other way to do it. If we can someday come up with a way to make 100 out of 100 work instead of 9 or 10 out of 100 work, yeah. then it'll get cheaper. But we've been trying that for 100 years and we haven't, we haven't budged it. Right, and yeah. so the best we can do is just keep doing a lot of it. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we've already gone uh, just about an hour, so that's as long as I told you I'd keep you. So uh, I won't uh, uh, keep you any longer. But, uh, you know, uh, you've been a guest on the podcast before, so you know I ask this question to uh, basically everybody that comes on. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Uh, you know, that's basically, you know, what would you like to get the audience or what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or, you know, if what would you, or what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from, from having read the book? I'd like them to realize just how special it is that that new, you know, vaccine that they got or the drug that, that saved the lives of someone in their, their family just how special and hard that was to do and that the industry that that's trying to bring them more needs needs your support one way or the other uh and uh and that it's a um really i'll call it an american miracle to start with because that's where it started uh that we should take great pride in the fact that that we not just because of our incredible scientific expertise in America, but we, because of our, you know, sort of pioneering entrepreneurial spirit, have figured out a way to, to bring about more of these medicines through the clever uses of the financial markets and the clever entrepreneurs who have given up other careers uh, to devote to this. So that's really exciting, something to feel good about and something to support. 
All right, great. Well, uh, before we go, anything else uh, you got going on you want to plug and uh, anything else you're working on or, you know, anything um, you want to well, mention? Well, you know, we'll always have another book on the Constitution coming <laughs> and uh, there will be uh, 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 we'll write more about about biotech, but but nothing that's that's soon to be hot off the presses. I will say the book is now available in um, uh, audio uh, as well as in print and Kindle. Uh, or an ebook. So any of your listeners who prefer listening to uh, to reading, they have a um, uh, professional, uh, you know, uh, narrator uh, reading the book, uh, who sounds much better than I do. <laughs> so you didn't you didn't have to do the, the the voice. I always wondered how long it takes to do a uh, to record an audio book uh, because you know, sometimes you know, I read a lot and sometimes when I get a little tired. Uh, and you know, I start like I can tell if I'm starting to lose focus. You know, when I'm reading, sometimes I'll just read out loud. Uh, you know, mm. to a couple pages to myself just to sort of like you know refocus my mind back on what I'm reading and sort of you know make myself not drowsy. So and right. and I sit there and I'll read. Um, and obviously, it, it takes longer to uh, speak you know, to, you know, read the type and speak it out and all that, then it does to just read it. So I've always wondered, like, how long it takes to record, you know, a couple hundred pages of, of a book or, or, you know, I can't even imagine uh, the people who have to do, like, the, you know, those, like, really long uh, tomes, you know, like those history books that are, you know, 800, 900, 1,000 pages of, of, of text, you know what I mean? Like, I, I can imagine that... It, I don't know. It seems like it must take like months or something to do, but, uh, are you right? I, I, I'd be amazed. I, I certainly could do it. Um, and, uh, and the, the fellow, you know, the, the, they hired to do our book was a, um, he's an actor as well as a, a you know, a voice actor and, mm-hmm. uh, has a great voice, but he, you know, he, he tends to narrate mostly thrillers and, and, you know, books, uh, books where the magic bullets come out of guys' right, 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 right. suits, <laughs> and uh, and you know he he does a terrific job of of saying you know recombinant DNA and monoclonal antibodies and all the 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 technical stuff. So yeah, it it, it there, there's got to be a kind of a training and a, a, a yeah. factors to it yeah. beyond just picking up the book and starting with you know in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, because it's just, I know just from, you know, reading to myself, or just like reading to my son or something like that, uh, you know, how many times I'll like, you know, trip over a word, or, or, or I'll be reading faster than my mouth is processing, and I'll, you know, mess something up. So I can't imagine like, how many times they have to like, <laughs> you know, all right, take two on this sentence, or, you know, take five on this sentence, yeah, or something exactly. like that. Yeah, and I always wondered like how people just like sort of fall into that line of work. Sort of, I remember like you know, uh, I went to watch like a high live match one time, and I was just like, mm-hmm. how do people get into like, like I get like how like kids get into you know like baseball or football or basketball or skateboarding or something like that. But it was like high live is like so weirdly specific. It's like how do how do like how do kids get into that? It must be right, like, taught right, like right. through the family or something like that. And so I was so I was like, how do people get into uh, you know uh, 
uh, narrating uh, audiobooks and that sort of thing. So, but I guess that, that makes sense that he's an actor. I mean, uh, you know, someone with some sort of professional, you know, thespian training, something like that, nor, you know, used to speaking out loud for a living. You know what I mean? I guess that you know, that makes sense that they, yeah, had, exactly. they end up doing the books. But, you know, whether he just, you know, he's, he's between, you know, movies or TV shows, and he calls up these the 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 book folks and say i'd like to be a book narrator yeah. or 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 how that works i don't know um <laughs> i we asked you know oxford university press you know whether they would be uh, interested in doing an audiobook and they said it's 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 not really their choice that oh, wow. uh, company audible i think it is will look at you know that's amazon that have been published company right uh and will will choose the ones they think will be you know attractive as audiobooks oh i did not know that and then they pick the whatever narrator they think fits and so we just one day uh they sent us a note saying you know an audible book's going to be available next week and we said that's great <laughs> but we didn't know anything about it otherwise nobody asked us would we like to narrate it uh, I, and nobody asked me whether, you know, I would have preferred James Earl Jones or, you know, you know somebody uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. with a distinctive voice, but, um, yeah, you don't, you, uh, you yeah, don't get, you don't get your pick. Uh, you don't, you don't get yeah, to. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, maybe if, if you're, uh, you know, uh, Lee Child or, or James Patterson, if, you know, if, if, if you want to do it, you, you just tell sure, them that's yeah. part of the deal. But if you're us, it's just, you know, we're glad that somebody thought that there'd be a, a good market for the audiobook. And, uh, and it's kind of neat to hear your, I mean, you hear your own voice on the radio or on the podcast all the time. But, but to hear our own words in somebody else's voice is kind of interesting mm. uh, and, a, and a new experience. Uh, so, um, yeah, well, you should you 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 have a great voice and you. No, you, I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I don't now, think. I don't know. Like you hear guys on the radio, like those guys get you know those guys have good pipes. <laughs> but I don't know. I just think. Uh, I, I don't. Mean, but but like my voice always sounds weird to me when I hear it back. I'm I'm assuming that's like everybody. You know, like I remember, like everybody sort of has that thing when they first like hear their voice like played back to them, and they're like, oh, that's what I sound like. Like I sound like that doesn't sound like me, you know, or like the voice yeah, exactly. that I hear when I'm speaking, you know, but, uh, anyway. All right. Well, enough of that stuff. Anyway. Uh, so the, <laughs> the book, uh, and now audiobook is, uh, from breakthrough to blockbuster, the business of biotechnology, uh, really cool little book. Um, I'm always, that's something I literally knew, knew next to nothing about, like I mentioned on the podcast before I read the book. Um, so it's always cool to, um, you know, read about something that you don't really know and, and getting sort of plugged in, uh, to a little world, a little, uh, the biotech ecosystem, as you call it, and, uh, seeing, you know, uh, what takes place and how the sausage is made and all that sort of stuff. It's really, really, really interesting. And, uh, I highly, highly recommend it for everybody out there. And then again, so the book is from breakthrough, breakthrough to blockbuster: the business of biotechnology. And my guest today, one of the authors, Dr. Donald Drakeman. So, Dr. Drakeman, again, thank you very, very much for coming back on the podcast. Always a pleasure uh, talking to you, and uh, looking forward to the next one.
Perfect. I am too. Thanks very much, Tim. Uh, No problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we have our uh, Twitter account for the for the podcast. You can uh, reach out to us there if you have any questions, comments, or you know whatever. Send us a DM, give us a follow, all that stuff. Our uh, our Twitter handle for the podcast is at illbooks at i l l books. So check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, mom. Bye bye. <laughs>